Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a favorite from the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze archive. This show originally aired March 7th, 2019. Off of my city, off of my home. We're flying up no ceiling when we in our zone. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're at the Big G Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven in our culinary studios, part of their culinary department, five giant kitchens. You know the drill. We have coming up how to do an enchilada bake for a huge crowd. I mean, if you want to feed 30 to 130, we're going to tell you how to do it. And this recipe is really, really delicious. Plus, we're going to do the history of soda with flavors that I don't think you're going to believe. We're going to get to that in just a second. And with my treasured food buddies, senior contributors Chris Prosperi, Alex Province, senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken. Hey, everybody. Hey, Faith. All right. Here we go. Flavors of soda have gotten so amazing. I don't know if you've seen this. I don't think I've had a soda in about 10 years. <laughs> it started to be this thing. I got very freaked out about health and then calories and whatnot. When I read about some of the history of soda and I found the guest we're about to talk with, I thought, I'm going to get a whole bunch of these sodas and try them out. And I think you're going to want to also. No matter where you are on the health spectrum, soda is still one of the most popular drinks in the world. The question is, isn't an urban legend about Coca-Cola and cocaine? Remember, that Mm -hmm. used to be that whole thing. What's the oldest American soda company? If we look across the world... How out there do these flavors get? Now, try and imagine some of that. I bet I'm going to surprise you. We're going to talk with the guy who knows almost everything about the history of soda, John Neese. He's in Los Angeles, so we're on the phone. He's got a shop, and he ships every imaginable soda flavor from his online store called Soda Pop Stop. John, welcome to the Fuchmoo's Party. Well, thank you very much for asking me to join you. Oh, it's a pleasure. So to start with, is it true what they say that colas started out having cocaine in them and were kind of pharmacy related? Is that true? Oh, that's absolutely true. They were pharmacy delivered and that's why soda fountains started in pharmacies. And if you notice, Coca-Cola took cocaine the colas out of their soda the year before the, I guess it was the... FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, the year before. The question to ask is not that they did it, but why did they do it the year before? Uh, Okay, so... And what did they do with it? Was it a... (laughs) It it had to be a pharmaceutical... (laughs) It had to be a pharmaceutical thing. Did they put cocaine in the soda as a pain reliever? They did not put it in. It was part of a leaf. Oh, I didn't understand that. It was right in the leaf. In the early 1900s, 
they did take the cocaine out of the lake. Yeah, right, no okay. They have it in, in soda. Okay. I remember I have a sign actually from the old Coca-Cola company that says the ideal brain tonic. <laughs> Pick me up. <laughs> well, you know, early on there was all kinds of things. Like there was uh, 7-Up originally had lithium in it. Wow. And really? It, wow. Oh, yeah. Everybody was really happy. We had a much happier country back then. Let's all drink soda. Bring in the 7-Up, people. Um, okay. So, first of all, what's going on with you and soda? How did this begin? Well, I tell the story that we were a little tiny Italian grocery store. What had happened was that the big chain stores bought the distribution channels for the independents then you couldn't compete anymore, and they were putting all the little independents out of business. So we were going broke, and we were looking around for something to do, and we decided on sodas. And, you know, if you were buying a beer, you'd have to be 21 in California. But with a soda, if you could reach the counter and you had your money, you could buy it. Yeah. yeah. We should remind people that you're speaking to us from your store in L.A., how about the oldest American soda company? Because they're all over the world. Oh, my goodness. There was lots and lots of old soda companies. You know, Dr. Brown's was, what, 1865, something like that. Werner started about the same time. Uh, the fellow in Detroit, he put his ginger in a keg and, and went off to war. And when he got back, he, he made a soda with it. So you have all these old companies right around during the 1860s. So when I was doing a little research in preparation for this, I came upon a factoid online that said that Dr. Pepper is the oldest American soda company. Their first bottler started bottling in 1891. They're not the oldest soda company. Dr. Brown's was older from New York. Verner's was older. There's been different soda companies, a lot of them that started up in the 1860s, 1870s, that are still around. John, one of the things I did was go online, and honestly, it was hours and hours and hours. I was starting to have so much fun, and I couldn't believe the list I was compiling of soda flavors. Here's what I found. Pickle juice soda. <laughs> no way. I found gum soda. Ranch dressing soda, a bacon, chocolate bacon. These are both sodas. There's a sweet corn soda, peanut butter and jelly soda, a lavender soda, onion soda, curry, cucumber, banana, milk soda, buffalo wing soda, a key lime pie, and my favorite of all time is poutine Ooh. I can't believe that there is a poutine soda. I can't even imagine how the, what flavors they're putting in there. That's French fries and gravy? And Normally, but how would they make that? John, do these flavors surprise you? No, they don't surprise me. But bacon and things like that, you'll buy them like one time and you'll say, okay, I tasted it, that's enough. Old flavors, old, old American flavors like um, a spruce beer. The cucumber, as a matter of fact, that cucumber soda that you're talking about, it started here. It was called uh, Mr. Q. We had it for five years before anybody knew what it was. They put it in the soda of the year competition, and it beat out Coca-Cola Sprite Green. That one is absolutely delicious. The first really marketable cucumber soda in the United States. And the Elise from Romania, he calls me, he says, you've got to carry my sodas, I'm from Romania. We still know how to press the rose petals. 
And I tasted them, and I said, oh, my goodness. So people in the United States have never tasted anything like this. They're absolutely delicious. This is John Neese. I call him the Soda King. He's in Los Angeles. He has a shop there. But in terms of us being where we are in this side of the country, I would suggest that you check him out online. He has an online store where you can try these things, order them and try them. And it's called Soda Pop Stop. How many sodas do you carry in your store? Well, right now we carry about 750. Oh, my God. (laughs) Different types. Oh, yeah. And our sodas are from independent bottlers. And about, I would say, 97% of them are cane sugar. You know, very. I will tell you, you drink a cane sugar soda and it pops. You drink a corn syrup one and it's kind of dull. Mexican Coke, what do they use to sweeten it with? Cane sugar. No, they don't. Only if you Aww. go to Mexico and buy it in Mexico. The United States government sued the Mexican government over the right to import corn syrup into Mexico. And Mexico doesn't use corn syrup. They use cane sugar coming out of, uh, out of Chiapas. That's what they use. Anyway, we won. The United States won. So we can now import corn syrup into Mexico, but it all goes to the enterprise zones. Where Coke and Pepsi are located, they bottle, and then they ship it back. Now, what they're doing, I have not had this tested, I will tell you, but I have a very good idea of what's going on. They're making an invert sugar, and they may use some cane sugar in it, but the other 40% will be something like glucose. If you notice, Pepsi-Cola cans and all of the, the major brands, they just say sugar now. They no longer have a reference to corn syrup. And that was because there was a case here in Los Angeles. It was a lawsuit about two years ago, and it never went to trial. It was settled and everything was sealed. What they decided on was sugar is now a generic term for any kind of a sweetener. No kidding. So it's still corn syrup. Wow. So it doesn't matter what you're looking for. If it doesn't say 100% cane sugar, it's not. Let's repeat why that's important to you. You say the flavor is better if it's cane sugar. Not only is it better, but it's better for you. You know, everything that the doctors are talking about, as far as sugar not being good for you, that was the major brands that they've tested. And all the major brands, USC did the study, University of Southern California did the study, and what they were really talking about was invert sugar. Invert sugar could be cane sugar and uh, glucose, or it could be corn syrup and glucose. If it's from corporate It is corn syrup. They're going to make it as cheap as they can. And that's the one that causes all the problems. If you're using cane sugar, it gives you a little boost. Your body spends it, and your body recognizes what the product is. Uh huh. So you carry 750 sodas, around that number. I was flabbergasted to see all these flavors. Do you have one that you just never tire of? Well, I'm really partial to mint. There's a brand out there, it's called Plantation Style Mint Julep. Whenever I want a sunny day, I have one of those. <laughs> I, saw I the, like mint, though. I saw a bottle that had a sickle on it, and oh. it says Lenin, as in it's Russia. <laughs> it's good. It's a red lemonade, and it'll turn your tongue red. I mean, but he also makes a black lemonade, and it'll turn your tongue black. It'll turn your urine black. Whatever color you want, you can do it. I mean, we have them. 
You do. Sounds healthy. Around here, we have one that's called white birch. That's in New England. I never had it until I came to Connecticut. But there's all different kinds of birch beers. And a white birch, it's normally clear. There's another brand back there called Big Bear that comes in a can that's pretty good also. I mean, I've seen it back there. I haven't seen it anywhere else. You might get a red birch. You might get a, an original birch. And they could be very different. They could be everything from very mild with that root beer taste all the way to very bitey with a root beer taste. As a matter of fact, Boylan's has their birch beer, their original one, and then every once in a while they'll come out as a seasonal with a red birch, which is very creamy. So there's different kinds of birch beers. And by the way, birch beers was a predecessor to a root beer. So, oh my goodness, I have to tell you this. <laughs> Do you have Fenneman's uh, old-style English root beer? No. Well, when they arrive... Make sure you try it. Everybody who's old enough to remember hires root beer. Try it. Number one, root beer is only made in the United States. Everything else around the world is not a root beer. It's a sarsaparilla. Well, they make this old-style English root beer. That's how it's labeled. And I tasted it, and I went, oh, my goodness. This reminds me of the style that hires root beer originally was. Today, if you can find hires, it is not hires. It is sweet, creamy, and flat. I just wanted to throw that in there if anybody's been looking for higher groups. So, Alex, if we could get our hands on that Fenneman's root beer, can you imagine the dark and stormy cocktails that would make? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. No? If you're gonna, no. If you're going to do dark no? and stormy, you don't need root beer. You need ginger beer. Well, I'm thinking, though, that it would be a really interesting alternative to ginger beer. We make yeah. them with ginger beer all the time. This would be kind of interesting. Okay. We're inventing. Yeah, we'd like oh, to well, do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you well. see our soda? <laughs> um, okay. I'm wondering if you do soda tastings the way that if you went into a, a wine shop, you would have a wine tasting. Can people sample these 700-plus sodas? It's something that we don't do every year. We do it every once in a while. This is John Neese, and he has a shop in L.A., and since we're where we are, I'm letting you know that he has an online store with where you can just order about every imaginable kind of soda. He has 750 in the store, and it's online at Soda Pop Stop. John, I want to do something. I'd like to invite people who are listening right now to us to get on Facebook with us and tell us what soda you remember, or if you have an unusual one, or maybe you even make your own at home. We'd love to know about that, because think of what you can do when you hear this list I've been talking about. Pickle juice, gum, ranch dressing soda, buffalo wing soda, and on and on, even a poutine soda. So what are you doing? That's Faith Middleton Food Schmooze on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll talk back and forth, because I remember something called checkerberry. You might remember that, too. That's for Connecticut people. John Neese, thank you so much for being on the Food Schmooze with us. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for asking me to join you. Thank you, Soda King. Take okay. care. Don't forget, we're going to talk with you about our enchilada bake, how to do this and to feed a crowd, whether it's 30 or 130. I'm serious. We're going to tell you how to do that big an enchilada bake. 
more mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, and I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired March 7th, 2019. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans, not cornbread, out of sight. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'm Faith Middleton and wanted to let you know you can sign up for our podcast once and then it comes to you, means you can listen on your schedule. So just go to foodschmooze.org to sign up for the podcast or just type in Faith Middleton and everything will come up. Okay, here we go. I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, one of our wine brokers and a big food guy, Alex Province. He's in a studio in Phoenix, KJZZ. Mark Raymond is away. Robin Doyen-Aiken, of course, our senior producer. I wanted to share a couple of emails with everybody. So jump in and respond to these. And we've got a little phone call coming up with someone who is with an organization doing something that is so good. It's such a good idea. Then we've got a cookbook called Extra Helping. And these are recipes for a sense of community and caring. All that stuff is on the same theme. So we get so many emails, and we love to get them. And here is one from Gina Giuliano. And she says, I listen to your show every week. I hear you talking about gluten-free options, buying and eating locally. My husband and I own a small business making black garlic. Mm-hmm. They also make barbecue sauce and spice rubs and stuff. But I was so interested in this black garlic. Everything they make is gluten-free and vegetarian, and they're in Meriden, Connecticut. They make it in small batches by hand, everything. We hear about this, and I guess people really love their barbecue sauce, which their grandfather started making in 1932 in Kansas City. But this black garlic, we should explain what it is. This is Mac Brothers Gourmet Foods in Meriden, Connecticut. You just look them up online, and you'll see their barbecue sauce, spice rubs. The black garlic is so interesting to me, and we tried it with a a bunch of different things. Let's talk, Robin, because I know you really liked it, too. Let's talk about how they do it. So there is a very special process to make black garlic. Now, black garlic is not a thing that grows in the ground. It is not a relative of other garlic. It is simply regular garlic that has been slow-roasted 
for 44 days in a special kind of like garlic roaster. And it's really seriously, more than a month, they roast garlic so low and it turns black and develops, you almost think it's another variety or something, this flavor. Yes. And it's, you know, some people will say that whatever those health things are in garlic are called, I forget. They increase with such slow roasting over time, they they claim. I don't know. But all I know is it is – in Asian food, they use a lot of black garlic. And you'll see it in many dishes. You just don't recognize what's making that flavor. It is, is it soft or is it still like a clove? It does turn soft. very mm-hmm. soft. It's almost like a creamy, yeah. like melty when, kind syrupy, of syrupy. Like almost. when you roast your own garlic in the oven, yeah, yeah. yeah. and you it's, can, it's spreadable, spreadable, it's like yeah. that. Yep, and it, it's very earthy. Yeah. Hints of like balsamic, maybe tamarind, right? A little acidic but sweet. Oh, yeah, it's, it's something. It's, if you never had it, it's definitely worth getting. I didn't know there was Imagine. people in Connecticut making it. But I know. Boy, yeah, if you can get your hands on it, it's definitely worth it. So, what do you do with it? What's the easiest thing? Oh, mashed potatoes. Oh, 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 anything. Anything. You can smear it on fish. We put it on (laughs) some chicken. It would be good in sauces. So you can find these folks online at Mac Brothers, M-A-C, by the way, MacBrothersGourmetFoods.com. And they're right in Meriden, Connecticut, and you can try any number of their products. But anyway, thank you for writing in. Thank you for bringing us the black garlic for us to try. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, really, really <laughs> good. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got some more emails to share with you. Uh, but we're going to place a phone call right now. To Sarah Leathers, who is a founder and CEO of something called Healing Meals Community Project. When this first arrived, I thought, what's this? And so Robin and I were looking at this and we said, oh, this is a great organization. And they're now, they've teamed up with Whole Foods Market as a partner because Whole Foods wants to help healing meals. Listen to what they do. Sarah, are you on? I am, yes. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Faith. Okay. So explain to us, if you would, what Healing Meals does as a community project. What's your purpose? We are a uh, nonprofit. We actually have a dual mission. We provide organic meals to families who are going through a health crisis. We actually serve everybody in the family for 14 weeks, and each week, Every family member receives five meals, and those are delivered by our volunteer delivery angels. But the other side of the work that we do is those meals are prepared by high school youth who come into our kitchen every week. They learn about healthy eating. They learn about communication skills and leadership skills. But more importantly, they learn how good it feels to give back to their community. And where do you do this? What towns do you serve? Our kitchen is located at our farm in Bloomfield. It's a 4-H farm. It's a 125-acre farm in Bloomfield. But from there, we deliver really 45 to 50 minutes in any direction. So we're in about 45 towns right now in Connecticut. Wow. And what would be an example of a particular health crisis And give me an example of a meal. Sure. Um, Most of our clients are dealing with cancer. But that being said, we have people who are coming out of the hospital with 
a situation where they can't get a healthy meal on the table for themselves or their family. Uh, we have people actually who maybe have a chronic condition that's a flare-up. And a typical menu for the week could be uh, lemon herb chicken with roasted vegetables, fish, Santa Cruz, uh, frittata, yeah. uh, Thai noodle, sweet potato noodles. Um, we're 100% gluten-free, uh, corn-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. Yeah. And a lot of our produce during the growing season were supported by Holcomb Farms. So we have a small garden at the farm where we are. So we try and work locally as much as possible. So, so Sarah, when you said most of your clients are, you know, just by the numbers, are going to be people who have cancer of, you know, some kind. Yes. You must have to, your, your staff must have to get to know what all the, the food challenges are for people, uh, depending on what kind of treatment they're getting, right? Because their taste buds are off or yes. they're, they're nauseous or something. Right. So one of the things we, we do every week along with the meals is we send uh, a quart of our um, immune broth, and that is made up of all organic vegetables and aptogenic herbs that are known for helping to build the immune system. Yeah, I have this right here. Yes. I, and, the thing, uh, and it's, let me see, what's in here is uh, juniper berries, peppercorns, bay leaf, wild kombu, some kind of root. Codenopsis. <laughs> Codenopsis root. Tragalus root, yeah. yes. Turmeric uh, root. Yes. Carrots, onions, celery, garlic, parsley, and sweet potato, all in here to make this immune broth. Wonderful. Okay, I just want to tell folks where you are. We just are crazy about what you're doing. Thank uh, you. And it's very nice that Whole Foods is supporting you. Yes, they're taking five of our recipes. They're making them in their stores, and they have them in their prepared food deli area as well as packaged. And we are getting a percentage of sales of any of those products of ours. For every pound of your stuff, they give you a dollar. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> I really you. hope you do well. Yeah. Thank and you so um, much. thank you, I'm sure, to any organizations or individuals who are supporting you. They're online, by the way, at healingmealsproject.org. Thank you, Sarah. Sarah Leathers, founder and CEO. Hey, thank you very much. You're welcome. That's awesome. I'm going to look for their stuff in the supermarket. I too, know. Right? And not only yeah. that, but it just, I'm going to look for them in general, yeah. this project that they're doing. Okay, one more email that I wanted you to hear. This is from a woman, second time she's writing, Catherine Goodrich. And she's writing to us from Italy. And she says, my dog and I were chugging up the hill to a place called uh, Bellisgardo. This is just above Florence. And I had to catch my breath when I heard you read out my email on the food schmooze. Thank you. But she said, when I heard what I was saying, I thought, I'm in Italy surrounded by all this great food and wine. And I'm telling people how to get rid of plastic in their kitchen. She said, what am I thinking? So she writes and she says, I've decided to follow up with this short note about the most authentic, cheapest, nutritious, filling street food in Florence. And it's the – let me see if I'm – I'm going to slaughter this, so forgive me. It's called the Panino al Lampredotto. Wow, what is it? I'm sorry for the pronunciation. Maybe you know it, she says. No, I don't. If you're at all squeamish, don't read on. I know that you're game for anything on the show, even organ meat. So here's the deal. Lampredotto is the fourth stomach chamber of a cow. 
And she says it's very unusual looking piece of meat, but by the time the person preparing it is done, it, it's truly finger licking good. Don't call it tripe. It's another stomach entirely. <laughs> so anyway, here's what they do. So they boil it in water with okay. some tomato, carrot, onion, parsley, potato, and then the maker in the street cart usually forks it out of the pot very vigorously onto this steel tray with all the juice it can hold and slices it into these quarter-inch pieces. And then you take this special Tuscan bread bun, and it's very crusty on the outside, and you slice it open, and this the cart maker then dips the top in the hot brothy water and then loads the bottom with all the sliced so-called meat. And you can do it plain or seasoned with salt and pepper or their green sauce or hot sauce. And then you squish the wet top on and consume it immediately in street food fashion, usually with a glass of Chianti, she says. She said it is so delicious, so cheap, so filling that it keeps you going all day and it has fewer calories than a chicken breast. Oh, <laughs> Catherine. Every time Catherine writes to us, I learn something. Something new. No, yeah. She says if we come there, she will treat us. So. Um, anyway, this is right near Florence, and again, it's uh, Lampredotto, L-A-M-P-R-E-D-O-T-T-O. This is all I can tell you. I, I just <laughs> love that. I absolutely love it. Thank you for writing. Okay, coming up, we have this cookbook, Extra Helping Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community, One Dish at a Time, and we're going to tell you about a giant enchilada bake that you can do for under $2 a person, and it is unbelievably delicious. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. And we'll be right back. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired March 7th, 2019. I'm Faith Middleton. This is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, New York, including Westchester County, the East End of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken. And you can, of course, talk with us on Facebook. We want to know about your interesting soda flavors, ones that you've tried and thought were either amazing or not so amazing. Maybe ones you're making at home yourself. Faith Middleton Food Schmooze on Facebook. Okay, I've been waiting for this. You probably know, if you listen to the show more than once, I love lemon stuff. So I love lemon zest, preserved lemon, lemon juice. And I kept laughing when I was reading this cookbook, which I appreciated very, very much. It's called Extra Helping, and you'll understand that title in a minute. These are recipes for feeding friends, community workers you appreciate, volunteers, people who are grieving. 
I cannot tell you how many recipes in this book have some part of a lemon in them. I can't tell you how many. <laughs> and I burst out laughing. The author, Janet Rich Ellsbach, is our guest. She lives in Massachusetts, graduated from Stanford University, has a master's in education from NYU, teaches writing to adults with developmental disabilities. I just like that bio. Uh -huh. That's why I put this in. And her blog of recipes for what I say, you know, messy lives is called A Raisin and a Porpoise. Janet, welcome to the Fuchmoose Party. Thank you so much, Faith, and thank you for that great introduction, which is making me laugh. I was speaking with someone the other day, and we agreed that it probably should just be called The Book of Lemons, <laughs> um, because I, yeah. I'm also a big believer, obviously, in the power of the lemon. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And then I started, if there was not lemon in something, I thought, hmm... How could we introduce lemon into this thing? <laughs> How could we get a little lemon involved? <laughs> well, we made something from the book. By we, I mean Chris Prosperi. We want to talk about that with you in just a second. But what made you turn to this idea? The topic appeals to me because I think we live in a time where there's so much division and so much isolation and so much paralysis around what, what is the right thing to do and for me, food is the one universal, whether it's a difficult experience or an illness or just a weekday, you ate something. So it's a very natural way for people to reach towards each other. And I dip around into various cultures intentionally because I think it's a very simple and accessible way for people to develop compassion across all kinds of lines. If you're eating the comfort food of another country, you're developing a really innate sense of what life is like there and how it compares to your own. As we get into some of these recipes, all of us feel compelled to call up people who are in some situation. And if it's a difficult one to say, what can I do? Which really puts the onus on that person because the last thing they want to think about is prioritizing what you can do for them. So there's this idea of just bringing food. The worst case scenario would be that you bring something that someone can't eat. That to me, that's the worst thing I can think of that could happen when you make food for somebody else. And even then, you've demonstrated to the recipient that you were thinking about them for the whole time, that it took you to think of what you were going to make and go to the grocery store and go to your house and put it together and pack it up and bring it over to them. Odds are pretty good they'll be able to find someone who can eat whatever it is. Let's start with, and thanks for letting us put these three recipes on our website, foodschmooze.org. This wild rice soup, I thought, well, that's comforting. And, you know, wild rice is good for you, and there's something chewy in there, so you feel comforted and filled up. This serves four to six people, but some olive oil, onion, um, salt, leek, garlic, cumin, coriander, carrots, potatoes, the wild rice, vegetable broth or chicken broth. You could put in broccoli rob or kale or some other kind of greens. And you make these little uh, meatballs or unmeatballs for the <laughs> vegetarian people. But that would be a nice thing to bring to somebody's house who needs feeding for any particular reason. Yeah, I love that soup because I find food for grieving people, it's a very particular kind of thing you want to offer. And I know from personal experience, you're not necessarily interested in eating. So if something needs to be enticing, but it shouldn't be so luxurious or so fancy that it's kind of off-putting. Pleasure is a little bit uncomfortable in those situations. 
So the soup has just about everything you need to keep a person going. It has, like you said, it has the sort of health-giving whole grain properties of the rice and some greens and it's warm and it's soothing and it seems to me like it's just interesting enough to entice somebody to eat without putting them off. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. There's the recipe I'd mentioned, which is the great big enchilada-ish bake. It's just a terrific, tasty recipe. And you say that you can scale this for 140 people and do it for under $200. It's like a dollar forty a person. It's so person. little. When you tasted this, would you have said that this was an inexpensive dish? No, it, it, was, it has a luxury kind of. I loved right? it. Yeah, Lo- and you I went back two, for more. I had two giant helpings. <laughs> so you do this. Only um, ten more to go. Yeah, this basic and <laughs> this <laughs> don't put it past me. This basic enchilada thing, and then the filling. This serves 20, and by the way, you can freeze a whole bunch of this. and I would make a big batch of this because you're going to love it. You get some things together. First, you need some buttermilk and some eggs, tortilla chips and some cheese, and the round corn tortillas. Have that ready, and then you move on to making your filling. And the filling comes together really quick once you have your ingredients done. It's drained beans. I used pinto beans. Ground beef or turkey. I used beef. Cumin, frozen corn. Little cans of the roasted chilies. Green chilies. Well, yeah, yeah, green chilies, which, again, so easy. A jar of salad olives. Those are the ones that are, you put in the martinis, right, with a little pimento, pimento into. Some cooked potato, diced up cooked potatoes. Again, get all this done ahead of time. And some fresh cilantro. Once that's all cooked, it just goes in a bowl and gets mixed together. Put on the side. Then you're going to make your sauce. Make a lot of this because we were dipping the chips in this as we were putting them together and we wish we made more because it's a great dip for the chips too. (laughs) And the sauce is just some onions, garlic, cumin, ancho chili powder, tomato paste, a can of the fire roasted ground up or chopped tomatoes. This was a great addition. Some coffee. A little bit of brewed coffee goes in it. Instead of lemon, she uses lime in this one. But, boy, it gives it a little zip. So sneaky. Yeah, a little maple syrup, um, chicken broth, salt, and fresh cilantro. Simmer it for 10 minutes. Boom, put it on the side. And it seems like it's a lot of work, but you're going to make a ton of this so it's worth every bit when you get to the end. To put it together, like your regular lasagna pans, and this makes two of those, right? 13 by 11 pans or whatever those are. You spray it a little bit, which I just did with cooking spray or you can oil it. Cut your tortillas in half, right, the round ones. And then you just like a deck of cards kind of like make a layer. To cover the bottom of the – cover the bottom of the dish. Then goes in your filling. Then a little sauce on top of that. Then some cheese. Then you do it again with the tortillas, right? Deck of cards, lay them out, another layer. Then you do the same thing again. Filling, sauce, cheese. And then this is where We're it gets at the top really – Yeah, now you're at the top. If there's a genius part of this recipe, this is it. Take your eggs and your buttermilk. You whisk them together and you pour that over the top. You kind of let it seep in the ends, around the edges. And then you go back to your tortilla chips, bang them. This is the, actually the most fun part of it because you get to crust the tortilla chips in the bag. And then you mix in your what's left in your cheese. So it's just a little bit of cheese left over. You mix that in with the tortilla chips, and that goes on top of these. To make that crispy little crisp. crust. You let it sit like that for about 15, 20 minutes so it all gets nice and the stuff seeps Soggy. in. Yeah, and then you bake it. And oh, my gosh, 
it's like a custard that comes together in this with the, the sourness of the buttermilk, the little zing from those olives. I mean, every bit of this dish has purpose. And when you bring this to wherever you're bringing it to, they are going to feel the love behind this. So oh my we're I'm talking go back to bed. I know. <laughs> nice talking with that's you, all I need out of today. I don't need anything else. That's the whole thing right there. Somehow that's your epitaph. So this is Janet Rich Elsbach. She's author of this paperback cookbook, Extra Helping. These are recipes for caring, connecting, building community, one dish at a time. They're international from various cultures, if you want to put it that way, or ingredients from different cultures, which are now, everything is everywhere. Janet, I can't wait to hear from you. This recipe is on our website, too, foodschmooze.org, along with information about extra helping. What is the purpose of that? kind of custardy sauce that you pour over the top. To make people say those things. That's the purpose of the custard. <laughs> to make it worked. And be so yeah. happy. Well, that recipe came from originally from a Molly Katzen recipe. And she's sort of one of the, the, to me, the kind of the prophets of comforting food. The custard is to make it really delicious. And it's, it's a little bit unusual to find it in a dish like that. And it's, as Chris was saying, it's tangy and satisfying and kind of soothing at the same time. What would happen if you didn't put that in? It would be missing the hug that you get from the dish. <laughs> That's what it is. And feeling it gets in your mouth, it, it's like a big hug. Would it affect the moisture yeah, It also? would affect everything. It would affect everything. And I think it's one of those things that if you made this dish without it, it would still be a good dish. You would still say, wow, I like it. Because it has all those things, those little flavor pops in it. It has some cheese. So it has everything going on. But that just pushes it over the top. Makes does it, it percolate all the way to the bottom? Yeah. Or does it, just, just, it does. Yeah, because so you it glues let it, it all together. Yeah, so you let it sit for 20 minutes and it sort of soaks up into everything. That's reminding me too. One of the other purposes of it is it kind of transforms the tortillas. I think a lot of times a dish like this is made with cornbread. And tortillas are much simpler to work with. It's a whole other step you don't have to do to make a cornbread batter. But the tortillas sitting in that buttermilk mixture kind of transform into something that's not quite recognizable as a corn tortilla, but gives it that kind of quality, that kind yeah, of uh-huh. So this one serves 20. So you're making, you know, 10 cups of sauce. You're using 36 corn tortillas. <laughs> but the point is also that you can freeze this, the whole thing or some portion of it, correct? Right. I scaled it up so I could make it part of what I offer at the community suppers where I cook. But it's just as applicable to make four little pans and tuck them into the freezer. And then sometime when somebody needs a meal and you need to provide it, and that person could be you, you can just pull it out of the freezer and have it be ready. Yeah, yeah make it's more in freezer. I'm, I'm going to do that. It's a great potluck recipe, too, because it, it's great hot, but it, it doesn't mind having cooled off a little bit. It's still great. So we're seeing this thing happen with more cookbooks. Julia Tertian, who's been on our show a bunch, I know did the foreword for your book. And you know, she did a book, as you know, about helping your political crowd and feeding them and this whole thing. And more of these books are coming out now that have to do with this sense of community, just like yours. What do you think's going on, Janet? In response to the isolation and opposition and division that's going on in the country, there's this groundswell of opposite energy where people are going, well, how can we knit this back up? And food is the simplest way to do that. In terms of the basic human experience, it's the easiest way to access people. 
there's that aspect of it. And then there's the ways in which you can weave culture in through what you're offering. You're not only breaking bread with someone, but maybe you're introducing them to the food of your culture or you're introducing yourself to the food of theirs. And it's a very approachable, accessible, comfortable language for people to speak. Everybody gets hungry. Everybody needs something to eat. Everyone remembers what they were fed when they were children. Everybody has something they like to eat. It's a very natural way to bring people together. We see this happening in restaurants a lot, where staff, often from uh, different parts of the world, all these various places beyond the United States, and there are these staff meals that chefs put out And sometimes the staff in the restaurant takes a turn at cooking the meal. And I can't tell you how many chefs that I know have had staff cook something from his or her culture. And the chef says, oh, this is delicious. (laughs) Let's make this. You know, let's put this on the menu. Chris, this has happened to you. We make the best rice from Yemen because we have a couple employees from Yemen. And the rice dishes they make, the love coming out of the food. So you can speaking the, yeah. right to my heart there. Yeah. My niece has just taken a job in Yemen and yeah. moved there for two years. Wow. So I'm getting all these stories. They're all about food yes. and how food is kind of the currency of how they're – it's a very international staff, so how they all approach each other is in the kitchen. Well, here's one from Aztec culture. So this is Mexican. And this will serve four to six people. You call this a hot drink of substance. Approaching someone um, who's maybe reluctant to eat or doesn't have much appetite, you have a limited window in which to give them the sustenance they need. So atole is a great way to approach that kind of situation. It's very soothing, but it has a good amount going on in it, just the protein from the milk and a little bit of substance from the grain, and it's warm and can be punched up with spices or done just very subtly made delicious so that it's just appetizing enough to get someone who may not have much of an appetite. So in India... This would be a chai, which is it's also at my breakfast table every morning. You know, that's what I drink. So here we have one from Mexico. It has spices and heat and, you know, milk or oat milk, sugar and cardamom and chili and, and zest. You, you yeah. don't even ask of what. Um, <laughs> it's like in this case, it's an orange zest. This is my citrus pal on the phone here. Mm-hmm. I love that kind of thing. You know, it's just so different. Imagine bringing that over to someone's, to anybody's house, for really for any reason. It would be just so fun to get that. Both its difference and its similarities are what struck me. A lot of these things, rice pudding and congee and this recipe, the more I started to delve a little bit into their origins, the more I could see it popping up in one form or another, in various cultures. Faith, speaking of like bringing stuff over, what's the etiquette to showing up to someone's house that's grieving or, you know, because I'm always shy of just showing up unannounced or calling people, or even if you're thinking of someone and they're not grieving, just bringing over food. That's a wonderful question. I have no special wisdom about that. I I share your concern of not wanting to interrupt, but also I think it's, it's um, maybe it's okay to drop off something, you know, that happens. People stop by and, and say, I don't want to take a minute of your time thinking of you leaving this for you. What do you think, Janet? You're right on the money there. That I always say that the most important thing, other than cooking skills, which are kind of secondary, the most important thing to bring to something like that is a little bit of curiosity and not a lot of talking. So even if you leave it on someone's doorstep, they can still have that experience of, well, 
this person thought of me the whole time that they were getting this ready and bringing it over. You were thinking of me. I was just reading an article, it might be the New York Times, and it was about how to express, it was the Times, how to express what we call condolences if someone has lost somebody. And what I took from the article was that maybe the best thing that you can say or communicate to a person is the idea that anything that that grieving person is feeling at any time is okay. I would speak also to Alex's point, which I think is so important. We tend, in response to the feeling you've just identified, I don't know what to do. I don't know if they want it. I don't know what they eat, can contribute to a kind of paralysis and people don't do anything. And that is so isolating for people who are having an experience of illness or loss or even joyful experiences like having a baby. When you feel isolated, the difficulties are compounded. So even the simple gesture of just leaving it on the doormat, you've thrown a tiny little lifeline to that person and just let them know that they're not by themselves. They're not alone. And that is five million percent more important than what you bring. And people will tell me, well, I don't know how to cook, or I only know how to make brownies, then didn't make brownies. <laughs> but show up, because that is so important. This is Janet Rich Elsbach. Her book, as you'll see on our site with the three recipes we were talking about, is called Extra Helping, Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community One Dish at a Time. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This was really a pleasure. And thanks to my buddies here. And never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Come to my